Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I invite an actor or artist friend to watch an episode with me. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. Hey guys, welcome back. Another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. My guest this week is Jennifer Krista Palmer, known to most everybody who knows her as JCP. She has been a stage actress, theme park actress down here in Orlando for a long, long time. We've worked together in many different uh, locations and capacities. And uh, these days, she is up in the Atlanta area because that is really where all the TV and film production is going on in the Southeast. And uh, she's been booking quite a bit of work. And we discuss it, how uh, you may have already seen JCP on your TV screen and not realize that that is who it is. So we will be talking about that. Um, she is super fun. She is funny. She is a very uh, driven and motivated artist. She is always out there auditioning, reading, working on her craft, doing classes. I've always really, really admired the fact that she is just one of those unstoppable forces of nature. And uh, it is clearly paying off because uh, the TV and film work seems to be coming her way. She's booking a lot of stuff. JCP and I this week watched Season 6, Episode 26, The Interview Show. Original air date was May 15th of 1985. Let's just jump on in. Let's get started. Let's face the facts with Jennifer Krista Palmer. Jennifer Krista Palmer. How are you, darling? I am excellent. How are you, sir? It is so fantastical to see your face again. Thank you. Thank you. It is good to see yours. When you called me out of the blue, I knew that you were doing this podcast and I was like, oh, how cool. Um, Cause I remember the show fondly, uh, uh-huh. but, uh, but yeah, I was like, Oh yeah, I get to come play. Well, I did ask you, I sort of was like, would you do the show? And then I realized it would have been this episode for you. Are you doing them in order? Is that what you're doing? I am. Yes. Okay. So with that, I was like, Ugh, this is not a show I want to um, lay on somebody who does not know the series or the characters. So I was like, you, did you know it? Did you watch it growing up and stuff? Yeah. Yes, I yeah. know it. Yes, I watched it growing up. I didn't know they had as many seasons as they did. And I didn't know this episode. Oh, oh, oh interesting. Well, what, uh, what made me contact you to be on the show, what made me go, I need to contact JCP is because uh, we'll talk about in a little bit. It was one of those glorious moments where as an actor, I'm just watching my TV and then a friend of mine just shows up on the screen and it's like, what? Oh my God. (laughs) So, and that's when I went, damn it. Before she gets too famous that she'll never talk to me again. As if. (laughs) (laughs) I better get her now. So yes, uh, everybody who is uh, close to you calls you JCP or do you just make everybody, everybody call you JCP? Uh, For the most part, it's easier on set um, because there's a, can I swear on your show? Please, uh, as much as you'd like. There's a metric fuck ton of Jennifers in this world. Um, Oh. Yeah. And so on set, it's an easier handle for people to gather. And I'd be like, please just call me JCP. 
Um, mm-hmm. And nobody else, nobody else really gets called that. So uh, I will say my family calls me Jennifer. So if you like calling me Jennifer, I have a couple of actor friends who like Stephen Lane and Brian Brightman, they tend to refer to me as Jennifer because that's, you know, that's how they, they like mm-hmm. it. So I, I, you can have the choice. But oh. for the most part, when I'm, when I'm working, if you've worked with me, you probably call me JCP. Yes, I, and I do. That's what I think of you. To me, it's odd to call you Jennifer. And I work and have worked with your husband as well. And he always refers to you as Jennifer. And there is a momentary nanosecond of who the hell? Oh, that's right. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. which, now, which Jennifer would he be? To, oh, that Je- that one. Oh, okay. The one that he married. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Yes. But what JCP and I are talking about is season six, episode 26 called The Interview Show, which had an original air date of May 15th of 1985. (sighs) We both just made the same noise. Like, how is we, I remember 1985 very clearly. Yeah. And it's like, how can we remember it? And yet it is so long ago. That doesn't. Because it was fucking cool. (laughs) Exactly. But, but. Brian and I have a theory. We've been we've been rewatching ridiculous movies from our childhood that I remember that he had never seen, and he's making me watch things that I had never seen. If you look back at the movies that were released in, I think it's 1984, mm-hmm. you can't go wrong. It it is just a laundry list of amazing, awesome storytelling. So yeah, yeah. Um, not that that's the same year, but that same cluster of years. Yeah. Oh no, no, it's true, yeah. and I think part of it is because we've dealt with it on this show is that the true decade of the 80s didn't really start until around 84, maybe late 83, early 84. That's where, yeah, yeah, that's where you really see, I mean, stuff in, stuff in 82 and for the most part of 83, the aesthetic is still very 70s. Oh yeah. And, and this show (laughs) particularly, and uh, we are right now on the cusp of going 80s-tastic with the facts of life. If you're familiar with the over our heads seasons, the ones coming up, Mm-mm. Oh, Over okay. Heads. Like, seriously, I have not watched this show since it aired. Okay. This was the only episode that I watched because I didn't want to, I didn't want to color my memory of it. Oh, no, no, that's, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. This. So uh, the episode was written by Deidre Fay and Stuart Wolpert. They are both uh, veteran writers of this show. They've been around for a while. They've written many, many over the last few seasons. And uh, it was directed by, this is interesting, John Boab, who is the in-house director for the series right now. He pretty much does every episode. And Stuart Wolpert, the co-writer. Awesome. That's very weird and unusual to have two directors and to have one of the writers be the director. I wonder uh, if but- there's something going on behind the scenes and because it was such a straightforward episode the one of the writers was like hey i'd like a crack at it while the other director was doing pre-production on another episode or something maybe or the fact that each segment is so Mm self-contained it was kind of like i could could see the segment and yeah yeah i could see someone saying hey could i do one or two of these segments since it's kind of just basically planting the camera and working with the actors Mm -hmm. Uh, So it seems like it would be a good foot in the door, but this is Stuart Wolpert's only directing credit. You almost wonder if it wasn't just out of an emergency, like John. That was my thinking, you know, there was was exigent circumstances that the director needed to go do something else. And he was like, I can fill in. I know, exactly. So yeah, definitely an anomaly, but this episode really and truly is 25 minutes of anomalies. It is everything that the series, The Facts of Life is not from a technical perspective. I mean, the only thing that we see that is familiar are the characters and the actresses, but we've got a lot of atypical stuff going on here. But before we do, 
This is the part of my show, JCP, where I put my guest on the spot. Oh, hell. <laughs> and I ask you, if you would please provide a yes. one to two sentence synopsis of the entire episode, just a simple recap, not unlike a listing you might see in a TV guide. Very good. This episode of The Facts of Life was a cheat. I felt robbed. Oh, oh, opinions. I remember, I remember this show so well as a child and loving the, the interaction of all of this the, and the, the hijinks that would happen. There was no interaction except when Tootie pulled a leaf out of her hair. There was <laughs> no hijinks whatsoever. I, was, I felt robbed. Okay, wow. And then I got mad at you for assigning it to me. I was like, why did I have to do this one? <laughs> Oh no, don't be mad at me. I'm mad at you. <laughs> uh, but you see how, if you had no knowledge of the show. Right. Can oh, you understand? I didn't, even, I didn't even summarize the show. Uh, it's a series of interviews with uh, a woman who's writing a book about their school. And the, the poor actor who played the interviewer never got a close up. It's all over her shoulder. She has no footage she can use for her reel. <laughs> Spoken like a true television actress. The cheat is what that is. Dare you make me do this episode, David? Oh, okay. Oh, I love that you're so passionate about it. I feel the hate and I'm loving it right now. So, <laughs> so disappointed in you. Yes. So it is. It's called The Interview Show because it is literally a show with just interviews and nothing else. There is no plot. So the atypical stuff contained in this episode are things like uh, it's shot on location. It's shot outdoors. The stuff that is filmed indoors, there is no audience. Everything has a laugh track and it's sparse. They don't lean on it too heavily, which is actually kind of nice. It could have been heavy handed. You're right. Yeah. And to the point where you wonder if it could have also been eliminated and been perfectly fine as well. I would argue they could just remove it. Yeah. This episode makes me wonder if there was, like, this is the kind of thing that somebody would dream up when they're trying to come back with COVID protocols, you know? They're like, oh. there's something happening where we can't get everybody together at the same time. So we're going to create this story. I, I feel like it was a placeholder episode where something was going on and this was, this was the way they solved the problem. Well, it's interesting that you, you, you call it that, a placeholder episode. I don't have the answer to the okay. mystery that is, uh, isn't this a great end to the season? Isn't this a wonderful way to sort of wrap it up and complete season six? Isn't this a nice way to sort of reestablish our characters considering it's possible they didn't know if the show was being picked up for another season. This could have That's been true. the series finale. And so if with so, that- how disappointing. Oh, you know, but to me, it, it's it's all about the relationship. I cried a couple times. I, I haven't serious. Now, I haven't said my my piece. I am so hypercritical of this series. I I tear this shit apart, and I will continue to do so today. I really love this episode. I really wow. do. Wow! <gasps> I love this. I love it. Okay, mm -hmm. but here's the mystery I was alluding to before. This is episode 26 by broadcast chronology. This was the 12th episode filmed for the season. This was filmed very early. And it's like, I, uh, 
had it been filmed last and broadcast last, it would have been, well, of course, obviously, this was a, we might not be back. Let's make sure if this is a send-off, it's an appropriate send-off. Interestingly, it was filmed 12th. And so the word placeholder is a great way to describe it because I'm kind of like, why would they do this a third of the way through a season? That tells me something was going on in production. It's you know? weird. And if this was your send-off, you can't tell me that this would have been a satisfying ending for you. Seriously? You had none of the relationship stuff of them in the same room together. I you guess. were talking about each other and you got a sense of their relationship. And yes, you had a little bit of that banter stuff, you know, when one was talking about the other. But the show hinges on the relationships of these women together in the same room. And we were denied that. If that was your closing episode, I would have staged a strike. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with Nancy McKeon. No, no, it's a terrible way to send off your last, if that was going to be your last episode. I say boo, boo. Oh. <laughs> this is awesome. All right. Well, let's start getting into the nuts and bolts and synopsizing. And I want to hear all of your passionate feelings of hatred towards this episode. I am living for this. Um, so we begin of the series of episodes. There are obviously there are five segments in the order of we interview Tootie, we interview Natalie, we interview Blair, interview Joe, interview Mrs. Garrett. The only crossover of characters is at one point in the middle of Natalie's interview, you mentioned earlier, Tootie comes running in to tell her there's a twig in her hair. I'm like, that's the biggest problem you have with Natalie's hair because, uh, Someone was in need of a blowout. Someone was clearly, it was a little bit of hot weather and uh, hair and makeup wasn't around. They were working outdoors, David. They were working outdoors. Hair does things. Oh, I know, I know. And they're done that. But typically hair and makeup is there to kind of mitigate anything crazy. Natalie's hair has never ever in the series been this kind of big and wild and unkempt looking. It doesn't just look like it's, style it's been around certainly yeah yeah, yeah. and uh you know and, and mindy cone god bless her pulls it off with a plum we love mindy anyway she's, she's fabulous. just so comfortable in her own skin i love that about her mm, yes um oh one other thing about this episode that's fascinating and i have to say i love about it directorially they do i guess the the, the equivalent would be it's like jump cuts where there are periodic breaks in the interview. It could have been one complete segment per character, but they deliberately chose to have there be quick blackouts or jump cuts so that we understand time is passing and that these are only bits and pieces, parts of a larger interview that we can't see. And uh, in the Mrs. Garrett segment, it works really well because they start off with her serving coffee. And then she says, you know, I make quiche and all these different varieties. Have you ever had duck quiche? And the interviewer says, no. And she says, well, you will today. And then we sort of cut to Mrs. Garrett putting down two plates as she's still talking. And even though the segment it's, it's, I think one of the shortest of the five Mrs. Garrett segment, you get the sense that they spent a day together. Yeah. And yeah. that is, that's a directorial thing. And God knows I rarely ever have anything to credit directorially about these, about the episodes of the series. Really? Why is that? Um, well, because it's a 1980s sitcom and it's just presentational film theater and uh, th- there's no real room to do anything of interest. 
So, uh, do you find the directorial choices lacking, and they're just leaning on the cast choices, or like the, the what the choices that the actors made in scenes, or do you feel like there was a um, do you feel like there was a directorial hands off approach because of what it is? Because I you think mentioned so. we have the same director in multiple, like he was he was their stable director. Yeah, I think what it is is that because of the the nature of the beast of this is a film three camera sitcom with an audience. So it's essentially film theater. Really, it's his job to play traffic cop with actors and cameras. Okay. And uh, so on the for day, the day, but in the rehearsal the week prior, as they're building this, the, the oh, show yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's work with the actors and all that but they never would have the freedom to do something like these jump cuts, like these very quick uh, changes, just to have them answer one question and then break into a wider shot or a more close-up shot. Uh, it's just, um, I feel like the lack of audience has given them a little bit more artistic license to do something interesting. And, and I'm happy to see they took full advantage of that. Interesting, I hadn't thought of it as an interesting choice. I'm looking at it from, being in the skin of those actors to say, oh, you know what, that didn't feel very natural. Let me take that back and, and try that segment again. So it gave them the liberty to make those jump cuts to pick and choose which uh, which of the takes were more better. Oh, and, and maybe so. In a, in a live episode. But, but, but you're totally right in terms of giving the actors the ability to do multiple takes without it being one big, long six or seven minute segment. I wonder, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. And that brings up another interesting point is that all of these actresses who have been, for all intents and purposes, acting for the stage are now being asked to give film performances. And I think for the most part, they succeed. I think Kim Fields is probably the one who comes off the most uh, artifice presentational. Okay. And least natural. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the film level performances? I honestly don't think they changed all that much. These are women who are in these characters and this is their sixth year in these character skins. Mm -hmm. They know those characters very, very well. It's just a matter of like, I read Tootie's um, uh, upright and, and uh, keeping things um, very surface. I read that as her being nervous for the camera as okay. opposed to it being presentational. But I can see why you having watched the breadth of the work up until this point where the show is incredibly presentational on a stage, that mm. that didn't translate to, to filmic work. Um, but yeah, I would credit it to the fact that they know their characters inside and out at this point, this mm -hmm. far along in the game, to be able to uproot what they'd normally do on a soundstage and put it in front of a tree on a campus yeah. outside. Yeah. And I think honestly, all of them really and truly do fine with it. There is nobody who really was like, God awful, really no, and truly no. they do it. No. And I think I'm going to say it. I've said many times, Charlotte Ray, sometimes doing the comedy, it gets a little bit broad and a little odd. Oh, yeah. uh, Charlotte Ray, when she has her nurturing motherly moments is when she is at her best in this show. And I think this episode is arguably her finest work on this show. Wow, that's mm -hmm. okay, okay. And I do not I can, heat I praise. <laughs> no, I can certainly see why they put her segment last because mm -hmm. not only does she have that that sense of, you know, putting, putting the bow on the present at the end because she has the experience of her own experience and her experience with, with these women as they're growing up. Um, yeah, interesting, mm -hmm. really interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. Ooh. 
So the premise of the entire episode, why this is a show of interviews, is that we have a character named Beth McNeil. And very quick- Who we never see her face. We never, <laughs> JCP is mad. She's poor, so I mean, mad. She's in every scene. She has interactions with all of the leads. Could she uh -huh. use a lick of that in her reel? No, she could not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever done a TV show or, or a movie where, where you ended up on the cutting room floor or you couldn't be seen when you thought you might be? Um, there has, no, not cut out completely. I've been okay. lucky enough in that regard because it happens, you know, you, things get in the editing bay and, and oh, yeah. you, the roles you start off with is our co-star roles and they're usually functional characters. You know, you're delivering the pizza or picking up the mail or whatever, whatever, you're, you're, you have a function, not necessarily character development. Mm -hmm. um, so usually the co-stars are in there for a specific purpose to do one thing. Um, so I have been lucky in that I have not ended up on the cutting room floor, but there have been times where I've seen the finished product going, oh man, I didn't get a close <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a two shot and I'm still in it so I can use it, but yeah. it would have been nice to have. So yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna complain about that. <laughs> okay. There are people just... I know that were cut out completely, so. Yeah, and it that happens. that's it's a risk you take every it's, yeah. it's a risk every every single film TV actor takes. Mm -hmm. uh, but this interviewer whose face we do not see, but has a glorious voice. She My does. goodness, I can't believe she. Well, let me put it this way: she doesn't have a lot of IMDb credits. I want to believe that most of her work had to have been voiceover work for commercials, radio. and radio, which are things yeah. you wouldn't find on IMDb. True. Uh, because uh, the actress's name is Judith Casmore. She does have uh, 15 credits over uh, over not quite 20 years in her career. She lived into her 60s. She died slightly young. She didn't live to, to 70. Uh, but she was in Foxy Brown. She was in episodes of Love American Style and That Girl. This is her final on-screen acting credit. So our interviewer, Beth McNeil, Tootie very quickly establishes that she is a fan. She has read all of the books that this woman has written. She's apparently- Two of the books and all of the book jackets. All the book, yeah. It's like, okay, that's weird. Um, but she said, so this is this interview, you're doing interviews for a book about Eastland. And uh, Beth McNeil responds, I wish I could duplicate her voice. Well, I'm hoping there's a book in it. The school has produced so many fine women. I wanted to get to know some of them. I'm interviewing students, graduates, finding out what kind of girl comes to this campus and what kind of girl she is when she leaves. That's my impression, I will not do it again. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful, rich, resonant newscaster voice and I'm, I'm a fan, totally a fan. Uh, so we established that right off the bat. This is what the purpose is. And she says that th these are never going to be seen by anybody. She just says, I like using the videotape camera because faces tell a lot more than words do. So let's talk about Tootie's interview. Give me okay. some uh, general thoughts about uh, what's your thoughts of the Tootie interview or interesting points. Tootie kicks us off. She gives us the context we need to dive into this episode. Mm -hmm. um, we get a sense of where she is in her world and where her relationships stand. Um, I feel like I'm thinking back over it and, and with the lens of you looking at it, feeling like she was more presentational. I'm trying to, to marry that with my original thought. And, uh, and I still think it works. 
I still think her being a little bit nervous about being on camera or her being a little bit nervous about talking to this famous uh, interviewer are, um, yeah. are, are it, it is what my brain buys, um, the justification mm-hmm. for, for that. I mean, yeah. she's not only keeping her at arm's length, but she is, there is a certain formality. Sorry, there's a siren going on. I, I, I can hear. <laughs> my apologies. No, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Don't let it happen again. I have um, no control over it. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some issues with Kim Fields as a performer, particularly last season, not so much this season, but last season, there was an awful lot of a little bit broader, a little bit bigger and a little less natural than the others. Mm -hmm. For some reason that was happening. uh, We were noticing that a lot more last season and this season she definitely has settled in more. Uh, And maybe because this is episode 12, again, it happens earlier chronologically as far as when it was taped but now to see this at the end of the season where it's like oh yeah she's been getting progressively better now this is like oh this is reminding us where she was before as you know any of us are in our journey i no fault we all have awful performances under our belt that we can cite (laughs) and uh yes so we do talk a bit about tootie being her nickname and that her real name is Dorothy. We do Which know I that. I had forgotten. I yeah. had forgotten that. Yeah. And that had been established way back in season one. Uh, Mr. Bradley had said, you know, this is Tootie, uh, Dorothy Ramsey. But this is the first and only time it has ever been referenced that the name Tootie was given to her because she was talkative. And, not, not Gabby, not chatty not flap your gumsy tootie do you can you make any logical connection between the name tootie <laughs> you're such a chatterbox we're gonna call you tootie does can you can your brain connect those dots because mine can't I, the only thing i can think of is that in trying to explain something like a word got cut off and it sounded like tootie yeah. Like if somebody's saying, you're so talkative, you just keep talking and the, da, 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 and, the and the word tootie came out instead of what they were trying to say. Yeah. So it became funny for its own sake because it was a flub up. I don't, I, but you're right. It doesn't, um, it. No. Okay. Honestly, Good. tootie from Dorothy makes more sense than tootie from talkative. Yeah. And even to the point where so many nicknames are, oh, well, I had a baby brother who couldn't pronounce my name. Mm-hmm. That that happens all the time in real life. That totally would have worked, though. I think, I think Tootie's the baby. She has an older brother. In an earlier season, she claimed to have two brothers, and I think one of them just magically went away uh, over the they course don't speak of. Anymore. Yeah. Well, I I really don't think they had a show bible. <laughs> I really don't think they did. Really. I kind of hard to believe. Yeah. For how many discrepancies, including some that we're going to be discovering here. Oh, good. So, but this is just the landmark. This is an important point because this is the first, last, and only time they make any attempt to explain where 2D comes from. And I do not believe they have succeeded, certainly not to my satisfaction. You're not buying it. No, nope, not at all. So she says she is a junior at Eastland. That is correct. She says she started Eastland in the sixth grade. That does track. We've talked a lot about the girls' ages, and they have shifted and changed. There is a season where Tootie and Natalie were de-aged a year. Um, And 
in the first season, Tootie was 12. And by the way we count her educational, she would have been in the sixth grade. And Blair also in, uh, in her interview later does say, I've been going to Eastland since I was 12. So we have reason to believe that's also sixth grade. Still a question mark that remains is why would a private boarding school start at the sixth grade level and continue on to graduation? Why wouldn't it be seventh grade? Middle school is seventh grade, pretty much universally, isn't it? Seventh and eighth grade was middle school for me. And then I went to high school in ninth grade, but not everybody mm-hmm. did. There were some people that went in 10th. So exactly. maybe there's a, some fudging that's there for, for age purposes, like you were saying. Yeah. The, the, to me, the, the big variable in the American education system is ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Some, some states have seven, eight, nine is middle school. And then 10, 11, 12 is high school. Mm-hmm. Where I'm from, same as you. We did seven and eight were middle school. And then high mm-hmm. school was nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. So there's that. But there was never a question of sixth grade. One through six is elementary school. Mm-hmm. So um, Eastland is, it's just weird. And it's, I'm sure it was just retrofitting what they had to do to make it make sense. Sixth grade was where they would have started their yeah, career. Yeah, sixth grade, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that it is sixth grade at Eastland doesn't make sense, but it is, uh, it, like I said, that is canon. Um, Tootie talks in, about- In your stage, in your uh, show Bible. In <laughs> my show Bible, which, yeah, I'm going to be sending back in the time machine and hope these writers fix a few things. Um, Tootie talks about looking for a college that has a good drama department because we are continuing this through line, which has been established and will continue through her entire trajectory right up until the reunion film in 2001, that Tootie aspires to be an actress. And uh, here's, here's interesting dialogue. Roles are scarce for actresses, even scarcer for black actresses. Well, thank God times have changed, eh? Yeah. But she does say that um, she wants to break the rules. She says, any role that I can go for that's in the right age range, I'm going to show up and let them know who I am. And uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I'm applauding her in that moment. Totally. And uh, many people have... um, Uh, Kim Fields has talked about how she didn't realize kind of what she was doing while the show was going on, but how later in life, how many younger African-American women came to her and said, you inspired me because Tootie was the only Black cast member, but she was equal to all the others. She was the baby. That came into play, her, her age, but rare to never was it ever a racially driven plot. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a little bit more of a trailblazing character than anybody, I think, at the time realized. They were just writing a character in a show. Right. So to hear her talk specifically about the fact that I want to really push the envelope and try for roles that wouldn't normally have a Black actress cast in them. So bravo, Tootie. Yes. Yes. She talks about playing the lead in South Pacific. That is true. That was season three, episode 12, entitled Green-Eyed Monster. She also says she was the first Black Juliet in Eastland's history. If that happened, I am not aware of it being documented in any episode of this show in the last six years. You're feeling robbed is what you're saying. Um, What I'm saying is uh, 
on the show, it didn't happen, but I can't find any reason to say that it didn't not happen. Wouldn't it have been nice to see? Is that, yeah, sure, why not? Um, She does talk about Natalie being her best friend. Then she talks about Blair and Joe being her other good friends and then Mrs. Garrett. And this is the first time Beth is hearing the name Mrs. Garrett. She's like, oh, Mrs. Garrett, who's that? And the oddest line, arguably the oddest line in the entire episode, JCP. She owns the pasta and cheese shop in town. (laughs) The pasta and cheese shop. We... We've been calling it a gourmet food store. That's what Edna has always called it. Edna's Edibles is a gourmet food store. Yep. And under that umbrella, we have had the most fucking confusing product line and offerings where sometimes they've been a sub shop. Sometimes they've been a quiche store. Sometimes they've ground their own meat into homemade bratwurst. I shit you not. Like a fucking butcher. Yeah. So... It's like all these weird things. And later, Mrs. Garrett does talk about her specialties are quiche. Well, in fact, uh, what is canon is that Mrs. Garrett's strudel is apparently to die for. And that was kind of the big thing that was driving her opening her own shop. But to have Tootie call it, Tootie, an employee and a friend, the pasta and cheese shop. What? <laughs> it's so freaking. Ridiculous. You are I, killing me right now with how, how much this offends you. <laughs> so, oh, but just the, the, the consistent inconsistencies of this series never fail to, to blow my mind. And this is one where I'm like, wow. So we get to sort of what is the overarching thing for all these interviews is what part of your school experience has meant the most to you? And she talks about the friendships. And Kim Fields does say, I think that we'll still be together 10 years, 25 years down the road. And the thing we've mentioned before on this show is they still are in each other's lives. The actresses, Mm -hmm. the, the actresses are all over each other's Instagrams. They still call each other sisters. And it is, it's so heartwarming to see Lisa Welchel got engaged last year and to see her post a picture of of him you know in the ring of of her uh fiance and then you see nancy mckeon with you know yay i'm so excited for you seeing all the girls weighing in on that in addition to the fans it's like this is so sweet it's so touching that they're still in each other's lives and and this has come up before up at that moment is that is that what your first tear up moment was Mm, maybe okay a little bit. Are, are, are we keeping a running list? Um, shut up. Okay. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, I'm not sure I had a full on tear in that moment, but that was a heartwarming moment. Because I mean, they are in school. They're, they're at the beginning of their adult lives. Some of them not even quite in their adult lives. So it's like, you know, how, how are you still really friends with the people you were best friends with in high school? No. Yeah that's just it so the the likelihood this is this is an idealized version of it where we we put ourselves in their shoes to say yes these formative relationships are very important and i would have liked to have held on to them all through my life and since i didn't i can live vicariously through them Mm -hmm. it's true so true 
so that's pretty much the end of Tootie's. And I realize I'm going so, so deep into the tiny little details, but uh, in all of them, it does end up somehow always coming back to the friendships and the relationships. That's really the thing that I really, that's one of the things I really like about this episode. Um, as we go along, let me just kind of touch on points where the, the consistencies and the inconsistencies. Uh, sure. In Natalie's interview, she uh, is talking about how Beth, the interviewer, by the way, is a former Eastland student. I don't think we actually said that earlier. We didn't mention that, but yes, that is. Yeah. So her, her reason for being there is this is where she went to school. So Beth does say the walls around the campus uh, are unfamiliar to me. And Natalie says, well, we had a couple of girls attacked a few years ago, including me. And then overnight, everyone was walking around looking over their shoulders. And that tracks. I was going to say that that happened. I remembered that. Season three, episode two, Fear Strikes Back. That yeah, is it's still, still part of her history. Yes. And then Natalie talks about career in journalism. Yes, that tracks. Natalie is the writer. Uh, and she also talks about maybe thinking about getting into politics, which we only alluded to once and we don't really go back there. We kind of stick with the writer thing. And we know from the reunion movie in 2001, she eventually becomes a writer and producer at CNN. So Natalie both lives her dreams. Both interests come together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Both writing and politics kind of uh, do intersect there many times. So like I said, there is the only crossover moment where Tootie comes and takes a little twig out of Natalie's hair and it's such a typical, what are you doing? Get out of here, I'm done. But um, yeah, and then Natalie's segment ends with, um, what has Eastland taught you? And she says, well, Eastland's taught me things. Well, I've learned a lot of things from my friends. Well, I guess it's kind of the same thing. And she says, whatever happens out there, I'll be okay. That's, that's kind of a, a lovely thing as far as it's given her a sense of comfort and confidence, I guess. So then we move on to Blair. Yes. Blair's interview. She is in a classroom at Langley. It looks like a set we've seen before. It's just one of the garden variety college classroom sets. You know what it made me, reminded me of? What? The set from Head of the Class. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Which is currently airing on HBO and I will admit to watching many of them. <laughs> oh girl. Um, I'm too busy watching the original Linda Carter Wonder Woman. <gasps> Lovely. And the original Josie and the Pussycats. Thank you very much. Although I will say the movie Josie and the Pussycats was, that came out a couple years back was yeah. really good, like better than it should have been. Yeah, I've seen only parts of it and I, I have it. I just keep meaning to watch it. I have it, I've downloaded it and I just forget yeah. to watch it, but yes. Mm -hmm. So Blair, we do need to, oh, oh I, I didn't mention, we, we talk about fashion a lot on this show, particularly really? the 80s fashion. Tootie was in her Eastland uniform, her standard, mm -hmm. Uh, Eastland, which we haven't seen her in in a long time. They haven't been using them that much. Natalie was also in her Eastland uniform wearing the ugly, unflattering, shoulder-padded, double-breasted blue blazer, which I hate because it looks awful and uh, it is never going to be seen again. And that makes me happy. So there. So this was his last hurrah. Yeah, because Natalie is graduating right now. Yes. Natalie has technically... Actually, technically, Natalie graduated last week, 
So uh, th this whole being broadcast and run out of order, this is a little weird. It's like, so you, you don't go there anymore. Why are you still wearing the thing? But okay, it was pre-taped. It, 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 yeah. it was la la la. It was before she graduated that the interview happened. Yes. Yeah, it, it's true. Yeah. Uh, so Blair is wearing oh, one of her, I call it her Dorothy Michaels blouses. That's oh. the Dustin Hoffman character in Tootsie. <laughs> My gosh, you're right. <laughs> Do I lie? Not at all. It is, it's got, it looks like something a 45 year old would wear. It has massive shoulder pads. It is a shiny fabric, which gives it more formality than you would expect or want from a 20 year old college sophomore. It's just Blair, they never quite knew how to dress Blair as the rich girl. So all they could do was say, well, just have her always be a little more formally dressed than the others, which often that would trickle down to her dressing like a 45 year old secretary. <laughs> Blair so talk. Sorry, this disappoints you so much. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the, the blousiness of the, the top and the fullness of the skirt makes her waist look real tiny. True, so absolutely. We, yes. I will give it that credit. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It is, it is flattering. I think the shoulder pads are a little bit overkill. The shoulder pads of the 80s that everybody was wearing, David, and then that time frame, the larger the shoulder pad, the, the, the more awesome you were. Come on now. Yeah, Come on now. It's, it was a power thing. It was all we're looking at it in retrospect. In the moment of the moment, that was her saying, I am a powerful, awesome person. Look okay. at me. Look at me. Okay, I will give you that. Absolutely. I will give that to her. Uh, Blair is initially very playing to the camera and flirting with Bob, the cameraman, and being very surface and presentational like Blair always sort of is, uh, you know, playing up the vanity factor and all that. But she quickly settles in and uh, she talks about mostly relationships and dating and men. And she does mention her ex-fiance, Cliff, whom we did meet at the end of season five and into the start of season six. I was going to ask. Yes, that is canon. He was accepted to medical school in Texas and did ask her to go with him and marry him to, you know, make a, an honorable woman out of her because God knows she couldn't live with a man and not be married to him in 1984. But, uh, <laughs> but the deal is uh, she does talk and further reinforce that she really feels like Cliff was really the first man she truly, really loved. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of nice. And yeah, some I emotional like, growth there. Yeah. And that's it. And that they continue it on because uh, it is such a common thing in these shows to bring in a character who is super important and then they go away and we never hear, see, or talk of them again. So this was nice. And then to have her be uh, to the point where we get this little overly dramatic moment where she says, yeah, with Cliff, I guess the timing was just, tell me about your book again. Like, I can't think about having feelings, change the subject. Whoa. And that's where we go to commercial. Oddly enough, that's a weird, weird time where we go to commercial. Uh, but that is uh, where it happens. And uh, therefore, we do need to pause because during the commercial break, on this show, JCP, yes. this is where I like to get to know my guests better and introduce oh. you to my tens of listeners and discuss you, <laughs> your life, and your career. 
All right. So I'm your commercial break. Got it. Yes, you are. So Jennifer Crystal Palmer, where were you born? I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania? I don't think I knew that about you. Chestnut Hill Hospital. I am a graduate of Penn State University with my degree in theater. Mm -hmm. That is a bachelor's degree where you studied theater. Very good. Excellent. And so you didn't leave was was Penn State did you commute was that close enough to home or is that still uh no I was accepted to main campus right away uh because I was pursuing a theater degree um it was a four-year I couldn't do Penn State if you don't know they have lots of smaller campuses that you yeah. can do your first two years at and then go do your last two years at yeah. University Park because I had selected um theater as my major and all of my courses were only taught at the main campus I went there for all four years mm-hmm. although I say four years it was actually over the course of five, but I did it in seven semesters. So, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. that's common. Yeah, I I went to college from eighty six to ninety. My degree says nineteen ninety two, because <laughs> took me a little while to kind of get all my shit together and turn in the. You oh, know what I mean? It's <laughs> I was I was done at one point. I was like, okay, let's load up these last two semesters. I'm let's get out of here. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I ended up graduating at seven. Yeah. Head in the sand. This is what I'm doing. There's world happening around me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be la la la. I'm going to be an actress. La, la, la. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so I'm an actor. And so did I say actress? You did. I did. You prefer the term actor. Yes. It is. Okay. Uh, all, every artist that I know of is gender neutral. I don't know why actors need to be as well. Mm-hmm. Writer, director, photographer, visual artist. None of them have a gender specification. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And, and to I've... be fair, I will say the kinds of roles that I read for very often, I will read for a role that's probably originally written for a dude. And I've booked multiple in that room. I'm so sorry about the sirens. (laughs) So it's okay. You live in a very, very high crime district. That's good to know. Yeah, we'll go with that. (laughs) So uh, I know you from our time together, getting to work uh, in Orlando, Orlando. our paths crossing at both the theme parks and the dinner theater uh, circuit and And all that. And, and the Mad Cow, of course, as well. Yeah. Yes. My very first show at Mad Cow was with you. Was it really? The, the constant, constant wife? wife. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That's crazy. So get us from Pennsylvania to Orlando. How did that happen? Okay. Uh, I graduated college. Uh, I did a couple of years at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Festival, um, which, if you don't know, is at the Mount Hope Estate and Winery. Um I got a lot of fight training there. We were doing outdoor theater. So I got a lot of, um, you know, experience working in in front of crowds and interactive and improv. Um, It was a period show. So we had all kinds of historical research and stuff that went into it. Dialects, blah, 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 blah. Everything that that, uh, lit up my geeky little heart Mm -hmm. Um, and English history. So yeah, Um, I met my husband, Ryan, there. Um, The wonderful wonderful and talented and handsome Ryan Delody mm-hmm. um, and we I had gotten to the point where there was no more upward movement in the company uh, I was a company member um, I did many years as, as in cast I was fight captain for a couple of years I became the assistant fight director my last year there and aside from that like if I had tried to move up I would be taking somebody else's job and there comes a point where you kind of outgrow what you're doing um, so Ryan and I decided to write a show and go on the road. So we did run fairs for a couple of years, and then we moved to Florida to get off the road. Um, we had heard a couple of folks that we knew had moved there and found work right away at the theme parks. And we're like, hey, let's give it a try for two years. And um, so we got an apartment. 
started auditioning and ended up with a whole lot of work, which at the time, which I think is probably a little different now with the pandemic and everything. Yeah, um, a little less. Pretty much everybody had multiple jobs and were like, you'd work during the day at Universal and then go to Sleuths at night or, you know, work during the day at Disney and then at night go work at Pirates or whatever you're, however you cobbled together work. That's what we yep. did. That's, and yeah. uh, after two years, we had said, oh, this is working out for us. So we bought a house. Mm -hmm. um, and which we sold in December. <laughs> we were there for 16 years. <laughs> After 16 years. And when we got on the Zoom, what did you tell me your view was? Your Oh, uh, you can see Stone Mountain from my porch. You can see Stone Mountain. And then I went, oh, shit, I forgot. Right. I did see in your Facebook feed that you and Ryan relocated to yeah. Georgia and you don't yeah. live here anymore. No, Holy and there's shit. a piece of the puzzle I feel like I need to shove in here too. In Please so do. In so doing the theme park dinner show circuit stuff that was happening, um, I got my equity card. I started auditioning for equity theater, started doing a lot of regional theater in and around Florida, um, down at St. Pete at like Freefall and uh, American Stage. And I, I worked down at uh, Coral Gables. Um, so yeah, I got my equity card. And then I started taking uh, Meisner-based classes to transfer my theater skills to camera, on-camera work. Um, and then I got an agent in town. And then started auditioning for TV and film, um, which started to light me up. And then in, wow, I want to say it was 2017 was when I finally signed with my Atlanta agent. And I was kind of driving back and forth for auditions and shoots and things. And then uh, my work circumstances in Orlando changed where I didn't have a contract anymore. So I started living part-time in Atlanta, part-time in Orlando. And then I was doing that until the pandemic hit. Um, so that was about two years back and forth, driving six hours up on a Monday auditioning and <laughs> working up here in Atlanta, driving back on Thursday nights to pick up mm -hmm. shifts at Universal and seeing my husband. And uh, yeah. And then when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, I went back home to Orlando and we were kind of sitting on pins and needles for a while. And then when Ryan got laid off uh, in the beginning of November, we sold the house and finally moved to Atlanta full time. But yeah, for the most part, uh, film work in the southeast really mm -hmm. atlanta is the place if you want to oh, be yeah. a film actor you need to be in the atlanta area film and, and episodic television like hotcakes yeah it's crazy and that's mm -hmm. because georgia as a state smartly said let's give tax breaks to production companies because if they come into town they bring people they employ locals they use our resources they need food and lodging and it stimulates the economy Florida, on the other hand, is like, mm, nope. Well, Florida had tax breaks for a while. Did they? But they did, yes, which is why there was a boom of things, which I think we talked a little bit about burn notice before, and there's a lot of commercials that get shot in Orlando because of the glorious weather all the year long. Yeah, that was more um, in like, what, late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, thereabouts. Um, yeah, that sounds mm -hmm. about right. Um, the difference is that uh, the Georgia uh, tax incentives do not sunset. They were implemented and they don't have to re-up. So when oh. you have a change of administration, like you did in Florida, if they had a, an end date on those incentives and they're the, the folks that are now in, in the government say, this isn't what, something we want, they don't have to do a thing. Yeah, <laughs> they can just they, let, it, let it sunset. Yeah, which, so, which And I know sucks. there's a fight going. I know Film Florida is doing, a, um, doing their part to, to fight to get production back in Florida. I know there's mm -hmm. some, some, uh, some movement there. Uh, but yeah, definitely Atlanta is where it is. It's happening. It's kicking. 
Yeah. And it has been happening and kicking for you Yes, because when you turn on your TV and start watching a show like, oh, Cobra Kai, and, <laughs> and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, I know that woman sitting behind the desk. Holy shit. There's JCP. And, and there are other locals too. That's the thing where it's so, it's such a delightful honor to be an actor where you can turn on the TV and see people that you consider your friends and say, look at that. Look at, you know, right. there's, there's Sarah French on uh, Bloodline. Yes. And- Oh man, doesn't she make a great young sissy Spacek? She, the role she was born to play. Exactly, yeah. It's true. And then, you know, it was event television to sit down in my household with my two mm -hmm. roommates and my best friend, Steve. It was event television to watch The Falcon and the Winter Soldier and to be tuned into the finale of that. And this gorgeous, beautiful, tall woman walks over and hands a cell phone to Sebastian Stan. And again, it was like, wait, what? JCP! What a thrill. Thank you, it really was. Oh my gourd. You are in it. You are now a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, and here's hoping they have me back. Yes, lady who hands the Winter <laughs> Soldier. Remember how I was saying about co-star roles where you're you're very yeah. functional? Yeah. Uh -huh. Carly, Carly <laughs> needed a way to reach him. So I created this whole backstory of what I was doing there and how it was happening. And Is there like, I mean, there's there's got to be like a, a Wikipedia for the MCU. There is, and that I'm now to... currently on it. You are? Yeah. I will post a link. I was gonna no, say it's really not necessary. You should you should do a thing. Lady who hands. <laughs> uh, I believe my my character was named Woman. Woman. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh God. First of all, I couldn't tell anyone. The NDAs for Marvel oh. are oh, out the wazoo. Yeah. yeah. Could tell absolutely no one. I booked that. I booked the show and that particular episode in a different character in October of 2019. Jesus. And I had auditioned for it, uh, multiple roles on what they, they, they can't even, we don't, they don't even tell us what show we're auditioning for. It's just Marvel Untitled Project or Marvel Streaming Project or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and we always get dummy sides. We never know what, you know, aside from what the character description might be, um, whether they have a name, whether they, whatever. Um, and I, the one that I, I booked a role October of 2019 and I was scheduled to shoot in March of 2020. You see where this you see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What could possibly go wrong with this right. plan? Well, as as we were getting closer and closer, I kept reaching out to my agents. I was like, hey, do I have dates for this yet? And they were like, no, they're currently filming in Prague. Oh, they had a problem. There was a um they were originally scheduled to film in Puerto Rico, but there was an earthquake. So they ended up going to, you know, they moved their schedule around. They were in Prague. Prague started to shut down because of coronavirus and they had to come back. So they were going to start filming our Atlanta stuff. So we were like, okay, it's coming up, it's coming up. And then the world shut down. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Well, all right. And we didn't have anything to do but sit and wait. Um, mm. I got word from my agent in September of last year when they had started production up again. Um, and they said, hey, the original role that you were that you were booked on, um, things had been rewritten. They've changed some things. Um, casting is asking, would you be interested in doing another role? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Get me on set, man. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm going to say no to that. I know. Um, there was there was some back and forth about which which role they were going to put me in. I was like, I, I, I have no context 
for what you're talking about. So mm -hmm. yes. And uh, this came through. I came up two weeks ahead of my shoot date where they continually tested me almost every other day. Like we have to go in for testing based on SAG rules. Uh, yeah. Um, and then when I went in for my fitting, this was my first project back at, with coronavirus, all, with the COVID um, protocols in place. Sure. Yeah. So it was, it was a learning experience to be sure. Um, going in for my fitting, everybody was masked and there was like, yeah, yeah. Hazmat um, suits, I'm sure. Even, yeah. <laughs> even when I went into my fitting, I still didn't know what I was doing. Because they just they didn't give me a script until like the night before, mm -hmm. so I was like, all right. And they in my fitting, they they were like, hey, this is this is kind of the story and where your puzzle piece fits in, kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, fascinating. Yeah, you yeah. you hear about that stuff, particularly like things like the MCU, where it's like it is so hush hush, and how like you, a, a supporting playing actor, you're like, you don't even know what's happening. Right. It's so it's so exciting to see you on that and, and congratulations. And uh, I hope that leads to continued bigger and better things for you. And you're in the right place for it to be happening as things are opening up and going back into production. I tell you, I'm auditioning like a motherfucker. So it's coming, whatever it Atta is, girl. it's on its way. That's great. Since I've been up here, I've, I've booked and shot a couple of things and I'm going to be on set later this week too. And it's been Definitely an adjustment to work with, you know, staying six feet apart from everybody and keeping your mask on, except to right before where the, you know, your mask goes away and you're ready to work and, you know, the testing ahead of time and all of that. Um, I'm mm -hmm. glad to say that I'm fully vaccinated now. Mm -hmm. yep. So when I go to, when I go to set on yes, Thursday, hallelujah. I feel, feel a little bit better about that, but it's, um, it's definitely, it's a different world. So. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, but I'm so glad it's happening again. It's, mm -hmm. it's a good thing. Oh, it's just so great to see your face and get to talk to you Thank again. You. So we have you. not shared time in a green room in a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And and clearly, if you don't live here, it's probably going to be a while before we get to do that again. Probably. So when you find <laughs> when you asked me for this, I was like, oh, cool. I get to go come and play. Well, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I'm so thrilled that you are so mad at this episode. Jeez. Can we... <laughs> you i was like why did he make me do this episode <laughs> it's just it why was, is he laying this on me it was the luck of the draw it wasn't intentional it was you were the next one in line and uh it, it just lucky i guess i guess mm -hmm. is the... <laughs> so let's come back from commercial and continue with blair's interview and uh on two different occasions blair alludes to the fact of coming from a broken home she says she appreciates having gone to Eastland, the sense of continuity, which she didn't have in her family. And then um, it somehow talks about, does she plan to have a family? And she says, yes. Would she send her daughter to Eastland? She says, I would, but at the same time, I'd also want to kind of hog her for myself. I'm not sure I'd want to let her go. Uh, because we know that Blair's parents were always kind of off doing their own thing. Blair's uh, mother divorced her dad when she was young. There were two additional husbands, stepfathers uh, that uh, were also a part of Blair's inconsistent family life. And, uh, and it's nice that they've continued that. I do want to credit this episode for all my complaints that this is uh, character appropriate. This does work and track for Blair. Um, and, then, uh, and then the last thing just of interest to point out in this is that we do talk about her friendships and in particular her friendship with Joe. 
And Blair is very uh, self-aware here for how often vain and clueless she can be. Like I always say, she's the, she's the privileged uh, snotty bitch with a heart of gold, or at least used to be. <laughs> she says, I've always been a privileged person. I've never had to work for anything and I've never really thought much of the people who did. And then I met Joe. And talking about Joe, she says she appreciates Joe's confidence. And then she says, maybe that's not the right word. It's her strength. And she says, a friend like that is very valuable. And then she pauses and in typical Blair and Joe always butting heads, she does go, did I just say that? Like, did I just say that Joe's kind of my best friend and uh, may have gotten a little misty at that moment. Can neither confirm nor deny that rumor. Did you now? Well, then. Well, Maybe. Well, 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 well. Mm-hmm. Then we get Joe. She is wearing her acid wash denim jacket. She is wearing her acid wash denim pants with the triangular patches on the outside of the thighs. She is wearing a red Henley shirt, full tomboy mode. It is 80s-tastic. Glorious. Yeah. She's putting a sign up on a building. It's like the camera crew is following her because she's so busy trying to play up this Joe is always on the go. Joe is part of the student government. Joe has to juggle multiple jobs because she's the scholarship student and having to earn her way and uh, be self-sufficient and all that. And uh, she does talk about how being from the Bronx, she goes home. They call her Joe College because she's the first person from her neighborhood who ever went to college. And uh, eventually she does settle down, sit on a bench in front of a bush. So we get uh, finally a non-moving active shot of Joe and a very weird and not necessarily weird in a bad way thing. They talk about religion. Didn't that strike you as odd? No, they were talking about her Catholicism, her, her Catholic upbringing, mm -hmm. which is not hard to believe. I think she's oh, no. mentioned it before. Has she not? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. We know that Catholic she was brought up that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. She, she does talk about that she briefly did think she might want to be a nun. That does track. That was a two-part episode in season four. So Joe does go on about uh, some of the other stuff on her plate, why, you know, how she's so active. And uh, she talks about, well, you know, campus politics, volleyball, lacrosse. We have never, ever heard of Joe ever playing volleyball. We have never, ever heard of her being on the lacrosse team. At one point, she was supposedly a dirt bike racer who had raced in hundreds of dirt bike races that we had never heard about until this one episode. And then it was never, ever addressed again. These are inconsistencies. Um, we do have two students walk out of this building. Like, I guess it's like a student union building or a building of classrooms or something. And they say, oh, look who's hogging the spotlight again. And the other guy says, yeah, Joe Paul in the check, live on camera. Terrible line readings. Terrible actors. Here's your sad card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and these students have played students before in a previous episode where Joe was in a computer lab. So they're uh, recurring. They're, well, two episodes recurring, I guess. That's still recurring. It's a co recurring co-star is what that role is. And that's awesome. Okay. Well, I have well, only one of those on my resume right now. <laughs> uh, hey, you take what you can. That's right. Um, but that's here's the thing. the song starts, isn't it? 
take the good, you take the take bad. Take the bad, you take it. Okay. Yes, Sorry. exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to sing. <laughs> no. <laughs> but these two actors, their names are Ken Daly and David Wakefield. They were in Dear Apple, which is where Joe was talking to a computer. That's where the Apple reference is. That was season six, episode nine. So that was technically 17 weeks ago, 17 episodes ago. But but they filmed it 12. So within the same. This was number 11. It was 11. filmed number 11. And what we're watching is number 12. So they literally had two weeks of work and then uh, bye-bye. But take it where you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> JCP is excited. She's like, they've got recurring on their recurring resume. Recurring co-stars. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Joe does kind of cap it off with, again, the relationships. And she says about her friends, huh? People I thought I had nothing in common with are the people I'm closest to. And when it comes time to talk about Blair, she does say, I don't know why we're friends, yet she's always surprising me. Last week for my birthday, she took me bowling and she was horrified to realize she would have to wear shoes that had been worn by other people before. That's very Blair. That's very on brand. And she says, but she bowled 10 frames and no complaints. And so she's kind of, you know, you know, waxing kind of. And then she pauses and says, Similar to Blair. It's like, she's not going to find out I'm saying nice things about her, am I? Which I thought was a really nice callback script structure wise, that they both have that. They're, they, they have that keen awareness of how their relationship works. Mm-hmm. And something like this insight would have been a weird bump in the road. So. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah. agree. I think I love it. The Blair and Joe relationship is my is favorite a... part of the whole show. Honestly, yep. Joe, Joe is is the tits to me. Oh yeah, I think she is. Oh, she's your God, favorite. Yes, she is, and I see because probably because I see a lot of myself in her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's that's not too hard of a stretch. But their relationship, the way they butt heads, and the way it was crafted was what I tuned in for. Yeah, I agree. I would be perfectly happy if we just forgot about season one and just say those thirteen episodes don't really happen. exist because the facts of life really doesn't start until Joe walks in and takes off her motorcycle helmet. Mm-hmm. in season two episode one so yeah and uh yeah i would i would see how you would identify with joe because you are a very strong-willed very outspoken um sure you, of herself not afraid yeah. to speak up yeah you're you're a confident broad jcp yeah no nonsense mm-hmm. there's a no bullshit no yeah, bullshit no, bullshit, no right nonsense yep and yeah. that's yeah, yeah. joe is often that voice in the show yeah, and yeah. that's absolutely uh the voice that you are whenever you are in a room and uh yes true that and i i find it interesting that you know, i i i have never again i i, I don't come from um uh i'm i'm, I'm a married woman mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm i'm hetero and, and i know that it that how much we were talking about representation with 2D for um for actors on television to mm-hmm. represent something i it didn't it didn't even dawn on me that joe could have been a lesbian mm-hmm. until talking with you today huh yeah i mean yeah. it's just because my experience is different you know sure. if i were watching it as a young closeted uh closeted woman yeah. watching that and seeing seeing and being drawn to her you know from a different perspective it yeah totally world. Yeah. Again, because you are strong-willed, no bullshit, confident, heterosexual woman, and you identified with her because technically that's what Joe is. Technically, that's like, she's written. It's but only, like I could yeah. see, I, I would almost want to get in the writer's room to see if there was 
any queer writers in there because how did this show made of complex female characters First of all, how did it get greenlit in the first place in the early 80s? No, in 79. 79. Well, it got greenlit because they had nothing else yeah. on the docket. NBC's ratings were in the shitter and mm-hmm. they had different strokes. And because of Gary Coleman, it was a hit. And remember, Mrs. Garrett was the maid. Yes, yes, she was. Strokes. Yes, she was. And mm-hmm. so it was like, we have a show. We have something. Yeah. You know, spin it off and build an hour out of it. And, and then they fixed it for season two. And it performed terribly. It performed terribly that first. How did it get a season two? Third week, because they still had nothing else. And it was like, it's cheaper to fix a show that's already up and running than to try and build a new show in development from the ground up. They like Facts of Life is a happy um, accident. It's, a, happy it's accident. a, yeah, victim of its circumstance. It just, it's so many things just happen to intersect in the right way at the right time. A so, conspiracy of yes. Uh, there you go. Beautiful. Uh, do you read, have you ever read Bonnie Gillespie's work? I have not, wrote, but that title is familiar book, to me. She wrote a book called Self-Management for Actors, which mm. is super helpful if you're working in film and television, even if you're just working in theater or want to learn a little bit more about, you know, how to, to look at your career uh, in a way that helps you structure what you need to work on. Um, resume stuff, uh, headshot stuff, uh, taking meetings, auditions, oh, yeah. like mindset, all kinds of great stuff. Um, and when you when you end up booking, it's it's the idea in the mindset world in that sphere, saying you know yes, you get these audition uh, these audition opportunities, you go in, you do the work, and you're supposed to let it go at that point. For you to book a role on a show, even at a co-star level, it takes a conspiracy of yes for that to happen. You had to be submitted by your agent. The casting director had to select your headshot. You had to get your stuff in on, in, in on time. Um, you had to be uh, uh, in the top five choices of the casting folks to pass on to producers. Somebody on the producer level had to say yes. And then they had to clear it through the network and they had to say yes. So that yeah, when the yeah. offer comes and then, and then you get on set, you know, maybe you, it has to go well or they could recast you, you know, there's a conspiracy of yes for things to happen. So fascinating. Happy accidents and miracles happen all the time. And here yeah. we are talking about one in season six. Exactly. And and that's it. And it was that it was the show and next season, they're going to change the aesthetic to completely 80s-tastic everything. The bake shop's going to burn down. They're going to re- reopen as like a Spencer's Gifts novelty store where they're all equal partners. And next season, they zhuzh it up because they're moving it to Saturday to help build that night because a new show called The Golden Girls is going to be premiering next season. Oh. And then we get your- I love B. Arthur so much in that show. I do hope I get to do a role like that one day. (laughs) Oh my God, you'd be amazing. Thank you. That Amazing. is definitely on my bucket list. So the idea is then you have your give me a break, facts of life, 227, golden girls. and 227, man, I love that show. Yeah. And so you had these all female driven shows mm-hmm. and who knew golden girls are going to hit? Golden girls is like, does anyone really want to see these? Past their prime former TV oh, actresses. In, in Florida. Yeah. It's like, you know, who would have thought, but it was just like that. And so people, because Golden Girls, people would tune in and say, well, I guess Saturday nights, this is the channel I tune into. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's been very lucky. And they wanted to keep it going. It was still doing well. And it was the girls who were just like, could we not? 
do a tenth year. Could could could, could we please can we call it? Can we call it? Yeah. I mean, I already Less. bought my third house. And... Yeah, and we're we're not making any residuals off of any of this anyway. So mm. why? Yeah. And our final chapter of interviews is now Mrs. Garrett at <laughs> Edna's Edibles. This is the last time we are going to see Edna's Edibles because the next time will be season seven, episode one, after it has burnt to the ground. So Mrs. Garrett has some shtick here where she originally, she, she starts off the interview playing nervous and stiff, but um, Beth, the interviewer does say, you know, I didn't plan to interview you because the book's about Eastland, but the girls all spoke so highly of you. And she talks about how Eastland, meaning Peekskill, New York reminded her of her hometown of Appleton, Wisconsin. That does track. That is she where she speaks about Appleton from. quite a lot, as I recall. She does, yeah. And and Charlotte Ray herself is from Milwaukee, so that does also track why why her Midwestern uh, little dialect there does come up a lot. Um, she does say that she left Appleton when she said the time came when I knew it was time to pull up stakes and leave home. Now, we did hear in an earlier episode that she eloped with a vacuum cleaner salesman the night of her senior prom. Wow. And she talked about the vacuum cleaner salesman, the allure of this man, whom we cannot figure out may or may not be Mr. Garrett. Her, I mean, she's a divorcee. We know that. And we know that Garrett was her married name. She never changed back to her maiden name. Uh, so we don't know if that was the man who was also the father of her two sons, which she does discuss, and that does track as well. But yeah, her running off with him implied that he was, because he was a traveling salesman, that he wanted to see more of the world. And that was kind of the idea of the adventure was what she wanted. So it does kind of track. And she does say, uh, I love this quote where she says, when she talks about leaving Eastland to open the shop, she says she had to look very deep within herself to come to that decision. But she says, I believe in change. You should shake up your life every once in a while and see what happens. That also does track along with the fact that she does drop new information that after she raised her sons, she drove a taxi. She was a taxi driver. And then new she information, says, I guess. that's new information. And that she was in the Peace Corps. That I don't believe has ever come up. But you'd think that would make it into a conversation somewhere. You would think, you would think. But here's the fun part. The Peace Corps will come back later because her departure from the series at the beginning of season eight is marrying a man that she knew from the Peace Corps and going back into the Peace Corps. They go back to it, I believe. Wow. Okay. So, so retroactively, this doesn't track other than we know Mrs. Garrett has had a lot of careers. She's She was at one time, they needed her to be a registered nurse so she could teach a sex ed class. So for one episode, it's dropped. Well, I'm a registered nurse. So it's like, why does that never come back that she was a registered nurse? She is clearly a woman of reinvention. It, truly, especially when before Eastland, before she came to this campus and fell in love with the place, uh, she was cleaning Gary Coleman's toilets on different <laughs> strokes. Uh, yeah, it's been a, a constant source of 
uh, question marks of how many different careers and skills Edna Garrett has had that they have just thrown into the show because they needed it conveniently for one episode. Right. So this cab driver thing is very, very new. It's like, okay, I guess. Well, at this point, at this point, it's probably an inside joke. I I would hope so. How many more weird, unlikely (laughs) careers could we give her? And just pepper them in wherever it fits, you know? (laughs) Well, after I was a Jesuit priest (laughs) is when I became a surgical assistant to a doctor in Slagonia. And... Okay, sure. Whatever you say, Edna, you have been all things to all people at this point. Why not? I honestly, I would normally be really losing my shit over it, but I cannot express how much I love this segment and how beautifully performed I believe it is by her. It's very honest. Truly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, other bits and pieces before we kind of uh, go to the final, final scene is that mm-hmm. uh, talking again about friends and family, talking about how the girls are her family. She does say, I wonder what it will be like when they're gone. I wonder if I'll be lonely. Well, of course I will be terribly. I was when my boys moved out, but then, like I said, change. Wonderfully said. And this is really the first time she talks about the girls being gone. When they came on board to work in the shop, which was the beginning of last season, I've been really pounding my fists a lot on this show saying, what is the arrangement here? Yeah, they're living there. Yeah, they're, they're helping her with the shop, but they're still going home for summer vacation. She still needs a workforce. What is the long-term plan for the fact that none of these girls is going to be around longer than four years because of their education, it's like, what is the, what's the real business plan for the long term? Not knowing you just burn it down and start fresh. But this was nice to hear her say that she does understand that they're going to leave. There's not this sense of they're always going to be around. And isn't it interesting where we just riffed off of the idea of how often this woman has reinvented herself? She is the recipient of more changes than most. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't, isn't it really poignant for her to be the one to say, yeah, this is, I recognize change. And then again, change. Yeah. And that's why for me, even though you didn't get a narrative storyline to have this be a potential series finale, how it could have ended here. Mm-hmm. I and still would have felt ripped off. You still <laughs> <laughs> but for I me, still this is not what I tuned into the show for. <laughs> not it. <laughs> I mean, it's really sweet that it was poignant and you had like little moments where you got misty and teary eyed. I'm cold and dead inside. I tune in for a specific reason. <laughs> I want to see bickering and bantering and shenanigans. <laughs> that is my expectation of this show. Oh, well, seek out some other episodes. It's there. I <laughs> promise you, it's there. It. I, I'm just terribly sorry that I wasn't able to give it to you this particular are you, time. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> so after Mrs. Garrett shows us on the wall that she has an honorary degree from the Eastland School for Girls that Natalie and Toodley petitioned for her to receive to make her an honorary graduate, 
there is a piece of paper on a wall with a you know a shiny um shiny seal. gold seal there thank you couldn't find the word shiny seal on it saying edna garrett eastland school honorary degree those words are on it but uh, okay it's a high school um i i don't think they have uh, accredited degrees at a high school david yeah it's a piece of paper that has some significance to these characters but is this piece of paper something that one can put in the show bible in so far Dude, as we don't have a show bible i thought we determined this yeah i know exactly i'm saying the show bible that should exist that doesn't god damn it but <laughs> but here's the deal she does say i wore a cap and gown and i went up on stage and received a diploma i'm an honorary eastland girl class of 1982 well that would have been at the end of season three and there was no graduation blair and joe graduated in uh 83 at the end of season four. So um, it didn't, uh, that that didn't happen. There was no plot line or story that alluded to it happening, but it also didn't not happen. It was a nice little gesture, you know, it's, for all that she's done. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's fine. Like I said, there's no record that it happened, but there's no record that it didn't happen and it doesn't contradict anything. Okay. And uh, yeah. Oh, and one of the things Blair, I, I missed, Blair talked about a certain Thanksgiving that she enjoyed where they invited all the vagrants in town. Does anyone use the word vagrants anymore? Blair does. Blair does. Yes. <laughs> Talking about how she's grown and become a more empathetic person via her friendship with Joe, but then referring to the homeless community as the vagrants was interesting. She um, didn't call them the, the great unwashed. So, unwashed I mean, masses. there's still, <laughs> there's, there's gradations there. There's some, there's I room for growth. I there's room for growth. Yes, agreed. Uh, but it was a Thanksgiving she talked about and the they, they really haven't done Thanksgiving episodes on the facts of life. So there is no, there is nothing that contradicts that. So that is okay. I will allow that to be canon in the facts of life cinematic universe. <laughs> All right. And so Mrs. Garrett's lovely interview wraps up with this lovely moment where she says, thank you for giving me this moment to talk about the girls. Sometimes I take the people I love for granted. You've helped me to remember what a lucky person I am. And that's nice. And then the final scene, we're in the living room and all the girls are hanging out. And Mrs. Garrett comes in and says, uh, what's what's plans for dinner? And they're like, none yet. Nothing. You, you do the cooking around here. You tell us, bitch. Uh, but in fact, no, that, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, really? <laughs> Mrs. Garrett says, let's go out to Dominic's for a steak dinner. My treat. And they're like, what's the occasion? No reason. No occasion. We know it's because she's had this little interview that's kind of reminded her how much she loves the girls. And so they all grab their stuff. There's talk and, you know, a little chitty chatter getting out the door. And then there's this final moment where Blair is having trouble getting her arm through the second sleeve of her coat. So Mrs. Garrett helps Blair with her coat. Blair turns and she just touches Blair's face in a lovely little, just exchanging a moment, little caress. Maybe got a little teary, not, not, not confirming or denying that. Maybe, maybe Did got you? me a little teary. Did you? <laughs> Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> and then uh, Blair goes out, she follows them out. And as we fade to black, we get the sometimes there, sometimes not there outro music that's been inconsistent this season, but by next season, it will be every episode will end like this, where we fade to black and the credits go over the black screen, not over a still. And we hear the, um, uh, the lovely flute and uh, little mini band music, not to be confused with the electric guitar music and not to be confused with the All in the Family piano music, which we have been subjected to both during this season. Wow. Okay. Consistently inconsistent, my dear. Yeah, clearly. Mm -hmm. Whatever works. Whatever the yeah. editor's working on. Like if the editor's working on some some <laughs> piano stuff, throw that in. That's fine. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's he's already here. Just let him, we're already paying him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <sighs> and this is the end of season six. The end of the two Edna's Edible seasons. This is the end of an era in the show. A landmark episode, JCP. Yeah. I'm still furious. <laughs> I was cheated. <laughs> I was cheated out of my childhood. I was cheated out of my favorite TV characters. Yeah. Cheated. cheated. Okay. Well, I think you, you might be the first guest to be openly hostile towards me as I mean, we If you were going to pick any of your guests to be openly hostile, who would you pick? Your hostility is the hostility I love the most. Well, that's something. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's true. That. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the banter of actors who've worked together for a long, long time. Long, long time. My goodness. So, JCP, robbed or not, I hope there was something in this time we've spent together that might have brought you the tiniest bit of enjoyment. Honestly, you. You're not just saying that. No, I'm not just saying that. I mean, okay. the fact that you have painstaking, I wasn't sure if you were doing a rewatch of this whole thing or you were just picking episodes here and there. Mm -hmm. Clearly, clearly you have put in the time and the analysis of everything along the way. And I, I love that there are people like you in the world that watch television in this way. Oh. And it gives me such joy to watch how much you can draw from, interpret with, play around with ideas and just brainstorm, like putting yourself in, in both the character episode and what's happening like storyline throughout. It's, it's, it reminds me how important television is. Well. I mean, think about it. What did we do when we got locked out of the world? When the world shut down, what did we do? We turned on our TVs, damn straight. Yeah, You're right. We turned to the artists. So it just, I, I think that's the new poll quote on my graphic for seasons seven, eight, and nine. It reminded me how important television is. That's what this podcast did. Um, uh, and I will credit it to famous television actress, Jennifer Crystal Palmer. Who's that again? What? <laughs> what are, pull her up on IMDb. What has she done? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that famous actress. What's her name? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you so much for doing this. I so appreciate it. And I promise you, we will do another episode where there is a narrative. I missed out on every, I was totally robbed. Totally <laughs> robbed. 
<laughs> well, as we ponder that, I will say thank you again, smooches, and goodbye. Thank you for including me. This was lovely. And there you have it. That was JCP, Jennifer Krista Palmer. Check out the extras on the website. Uh, As I do every week, I post supplemental stuff, including uh, her IMDb page, her Marvel Cinematic Universe page, where she is listed as woman. (laughs) And, uh, And you can see her reel on her IMDb page showing some of the TV appearances she's made. And uh, like I said earlier, you may have already seen her and not even realized it. Next week, season seven, over our heads. The Edna's Edibles days are done. And we are going to be starting off, kicking off season seven, Out of the Fire, with Matthew Arter returning not for a two-arter, It will be a three-arter. So look forward to that. Haven't recorded it yet, so I am looking forward to it. And I I got a lot of research I got to do because we are going to get into it. We are going to deep dive. You can watch Season 7, Episode 1 at dailymotion.com. The link is right there in your hand in the show notes and also on this episode's webpage. So as I'm about to sign off, I realize... We have just watched the final episode that has lyrics sung in the closing theme, I believe starting next week and for the rest of the run of the entire series. It's just an instrumental and theme song without the lovely Miss Gloria Loring singing the alternate lyrics. So, uh, yeah, very weird to consider that uh, among the many, many, many changes that are coming our way. So... I'll look forward to exploring all of those next week with Matthew and with you guys. That's all for now. Thank you for listening, and remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever fine podcasts are found. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.